As men, we can become preoccupied with financial success. I've certainly felt that at times myself. But the team and I have designed a quiz that's going to help you improve your intentions to achieve better results for your career and business. And there's a link to it in the show notes. I'll tell you more at the end of this episode. But for now, enjoy listening. The alarms are going off, showing the blood pressure's low, the heart rate's really low. This guy looked like his heart was going to stop. And actually, it did stop. I thought, oh God, I've killed him. Welcome to Stories of Men, Beneath the Surface. I'm Alex Melia. Join me as we discover what it means to be a man in the modern era. This episode is about what happens when a split-second decision in a life-or-death moment led to the worst possible outcome. Back when Robert was starting out as a young doctor, he was working in an intensive care unit in North London. He was responsible for up to 40 patients at a time. But there was one patient who stood out in his memory, a man we'll call Daniel. Daniel had been visiting the UK when he fell extremely ill with pancreatitis. That's an inflammation of the pancreas, which led to Daniel needing to be put on a ventilator. We went to see Daniel and Daniel had a a fluid on his left lung that was stopping the oxygen getting through or at least hindering it. So it was decided that I will put a tube into his left lung to try and drain the fluid. So I popped the drain in, the drain went in and fluid came out into the bag. So that's good news. Then seeing out other patients, having a cup of tea, talking about them, and then a massive alarm bell rang. I mean, not a metaphorical one, a real alarm. And when an alarm goes off, you're really nervous in intensive care. And we were called urgently to see Daniel, and we bombed it down the corridor, ran into the room, a few of us, and we could see there was a load of blood suddenly come into the bag. The alarms were going off, showing the blood pressure's low, the heart rate's really low. This guy looked like his heart was going to stop. And actually, it did stop. A minute later, it just showed a flat line on the ECG and his, his, his heart stopped. I thought, oh, God, I've killed him. What a disaster for him. And of course, in the moment, you're also petrified for yourself. So then, of course, everyone piles in. It's like a scene from ER. We made a hole. We put our finger in his chest, a load of blood came out. We had to get loads of blood. We then get uh, urgent ultrasound. So the radiologist, the x-ray person comes up, who happened to be one of my ex-girlfriends, which just added sort of embarrassment, I suppose you could say, although it, it was much more than embarrassment because she was kind of helping sort up a mess, a clinical mess that I felt I had created. And of course, there's this wife standing outside thinking, what the hell's going on? We give some drugs to try and reduce the clotting. We give a load of blood, of course, and his heart starts beating again. But of course, he has a time in which there's no no blood, well, no blood with oxygen to his brain. Disaster, disaster for him, absolute disaster. I was ashamed uh, and sort of hid a bit. Loads of people were taking care of him, so kind of on a on a minute to minute thing that didn't matter that I was not there but I was just ashamed and I felt a bit paranoid as well I kind of felt that people were laughing at me of course they weren't laughing at me not for one minute 
over the ensuing days and months, he has an MRI of his brain, which shows badness in some core areas, i.e. not much functioning. This pancreatitis gets better. So he's left with someone who's got a brain injury and the other stuff has got better. My main feeling is feeling like a fraud. I felt fake, basically, I think, coming to work and embarrassed of myself of causing this terrible thing. And why didn't we notice it? Couldn't we have seen it earlier? Could we have done anything differently? A lot of bargaining in my head. Visiting him after this terrible episode, those times are terrible, coming to see the patient accompanied by his wife with her. Obviously, she's she's devastated. You know, she's, she's well, what's happened to my husband? He was on a life support machine, not capable of breathing himself, but obviously his wife wanted him back in, in their homeland. So he doesn't wake up. He is transported by a plane back to wherever, where, where he was born, and uh, passes away there. Were you being particularly hard on yourself, or would this have just happened anyway? Is there anything else you could have done? Because it sounds like that it was kind of out of your hands, but you took it uh, really hard. I think it probably was out of my hands. I think it's it was someone who's really unwell. And if and people obviously will have complications if they if they're really unwell, the chances of becoming even more unwell are much bigger. Um, so I kind of think of it now as in and the medical students that I teach ask me, you know, about complications, how do you cope? And I, I guess I I sort of think that I was hard on too hard on myself. What made this one different? where you kind of took responsibility in some way? I guess I feel because of me, I actually put the drain in, which caused the bleeding, which then caused the, the lack of blood from the heart to the brain, which you know triggered obviously his, his uh, brain injury. So, yeah, so, so, so that's why. A bit like a surgeon. I'm not a surgeon, but it's a bit like a surgeon. Yeah, the patient's well. The patient wasn't well, to be fair. They were on all sorts of drugs, including blood thinners, which made it easier for him to bleed. Um, but so I am sympathetic. And I, I guess it's informed how I am now if there are complications, you know, of, of patients. What was that like for you as a man, as a male doctor, having that sort of responsibility, not just with this particular patient, Daniel, but with all people in general? I mean, especially as a young doctor at the time, and obviously as a more experienced doctor now. I guess as a young doctor, I was protected, actually, by the sort of older ones. I felt I had an umbrella above me, to some extent, of niceness and kind people who, covered for me is the wrong word, but they said, hey, let's have this as the plan. So I just had to do the plan. And that's how I learned, I guess, partly from them. I think that they were incredibly accessible. And they were blokes, actually, mostly. Um, the, the senior doctors were very easy to call. They would, they would say, just call me. Call me on the phone. Obviously, no mobile phones. Uh, so they would respond. Uh, okay, just do this, this, this. So I felt... Um, I felt it was a privilege. I know it's really cheesy, isn't it? But it's, and it remains for me, even uh, that's the bit I really, really like now. I'm 53. I've just had a week, literally a week just now, the last week. Um, this is my first day off of being on call for a whole week for our surgical intensive care. And I, I love it because 
It's about people. It's about how can I help you? How can I help you? Uh, I know this is grim, but my job is to make it the least grim for you. Um, whether it's just trying to buy a newspaper, there's a, a guy who was having a terrible time. I bought a newspaper for you. He wanted to see me the mirror. So I bought him the mirror from a newspaper, from a news agent. But actually, more medical stuff, of course. It's about how can we get rid of the pain? Um, how can I uh, give you energy? How can I help you? Yeah, how can I give you love and energy? That's how I view it, really. It's about transference of energy. How can I give you some positive energy? Not lying, of course, if someone's in a serious way and they may pass away, we'd have a different type of conversation. Um, it wouldn't be, uh, but it's very important not to lie, uh, of course, for obvious reasons. Um, it, but I would still be positive and kind. How are you doing? I know it's like, you know, and so on. It takes a real sense of character to be able to do what you do, because like you say, it's all about people. And I agree. I do something in the medical field, well, that I have done for about nine years. My business, we teach doctors and nurses from overseas to pass an English exam so they can work in the NHS. Now, that's about people and it's about care and, and hopefully we're helping more and more doctors and nurses to come over to the UK. But that's what I do is very different to what you do. I don't think I could you know, be able to save someone's life, literally speaking. So what is it about your character that you don't become overwhelmed by the pressure of it all? Well, weirdly, I'm really like my dad. I've only started to realise that. My dad was a guy born before the se before the Second World War. He was too young to fight yet yeah, in the Second World War. And then he really wanted to be a doctor after. Of course, he couldn't have been a doctor. Not of course, but they were giving priority to people who'd fought. And he was quite an eccentric guy, but became a hospital biochemist. I, he was running a biochem lab. He was the only person in the biochem, biochemistry lab. And when I used to go in the school holidays, because obviously we didn't have extra childcare, I used to have, just hang out with him. He just was ridiculously enthusiastic and walking around and waving to people. And I, I sometimes catch myself and I think, I am my dad, basically. So I would say in answer to that, I do have quite a lot of energy. And I don't get overwhelmed. I think if it was my relative, it'd be totally different. One of my colleagues, had a, a serious thing, she had a baby and some complications. And I went to see her the next day and I froze and I realized that I could no way look after her. In no, I couldn't make any judgments about her medical thing because I was, it, it was an emotional response. That way, it was totally impossible. And I was genuinely scared for her life. I do realize that it's very different if it's your relative. It's just a total total game changer it's to, it's not the same as me looking after your son or your daughter or your mum or dad um or, um at all it's and, and that's when my dad had his bypass graft i went to the toilet and i prayed pretty much for 48 hours bargaining with god please let my dad live and i was about 11 or 12 so i i don't mean i stayed on the toilet for 48 hours uh, that would be a bit curious but i was i was praying on and off like saying please you know, it, it, I'll be a good person if, if, if my dad lives. Um, and he did live about 30 years. So I think um, it's very different. When people say, I don't know how you could do a job, it's very different because it's not your relatives, as I would say. Um, and most of the time, you can be positive and kind. And that's an amazing thing to be able to be. And people sense that. I, I see what you're saying, but it must be incredibly difficult for you to go home after a tough day at work and just be able to switch off. 
I mean, how did you recover from the situation with Daniel? Because clearly it take it taken a mental toll on you. How many days, how many weeks did it take you to recover from that? I would say the mental things that have happened as a result of medicine, but uh, Daniel particularly, let's say, uh, the big resolution was when we had to go and see the lawyers. The lawyers interviewed us. My consultants went with me, the registrar, the middle grade doctor, um, and the uh, and myself, and uh, probably one or two other nurses. And it was just a huge, re- I guess it was a huge relief that I, we didn't have to go to court. I guess they settled out of court for some money, I guess. How many weeks and months after was, did this happen? Three years, two years. I mean, quite a long, a long time. Wow. So that mental toll for that yeah. two to three year period must have been difficult for you. Yeah, just casting my mind back. I think it was on my mind. It, of course, as time went on, it was less on my mind. you know. But then it reared its head again when we had to go and see the barrister and then she just quizzed us about a few things and then we left. So actually that bit was relatively painless and I was relieved that it was kind of ending at some level. For me, actually, COVID was the, the, the next really, really big thing that is looking after 70 or it wasn't me on my own, nurses, colleagues, medical students, doctors, loads of us looking after really ill people but one of the terrible things about people who are unwell enough to need intensive care in covid they were on a ventilator they couldn't communicate with you and the relatives couldn't care for them and you couldn't chat with the relatives and for me that would have been utterly unbearable you know to think of my mum or my dad you know in there so i I totally get how people are angry and and i'll get very upset when they when whatever reason they are thinking again of of their relatives who we had to be the relatives we had to whisper the kind things we had to show the patient's love and you know niceness as a surrogate mark of the relatives because of all the covid rules and stuff then and the other thing about covid for me was that i teach medical students a third of my job is that and all of a sudden we had to kind of look after them and so I went into overdrive making online stuff for them and became properly tired and fatigued so I think it took me about a year and a half, maybe not even now, to get over that. You know, So those are the other sort of similar episodes of work situations really affecting me. Unfortunately, during COVID, a lot of the medical students who were even first years had to be pulled in to actually help out at the hospital. And some of them came back completely traumatized by it. What was your experience in working with them like and and how did you help them through that time? Because obviously, even though you didn't go through like a pandemic 20 odd years ago when you were starting out, you did go through some difficult times. So how did you help them with your experience? Well, weirdly, I was in charge or one of the people in charge of the UCL students going to my hospital, which is UCH. We had about 250 in total medical students come. There's about 350 in a year. We did these things called town hall meetings, a bit like lots of multiple Zooms. So we, so they know me. The students kind of know me from other, from early years teaching. So I was a sort of trusted figure. They all had my mobile, or I was on their WhatsApp. There was a group WhatsApp, and I got some of our psychologists to write a little piece on taking care of yourself because they felt really deflated. They thought, well, we're not learning anything now. Of course, they were learning so much so much and to hear some of their stories they've learned loads we had debriefs and they knew that they could call on a few people if some particularly traumatic thing now some of them had trauma trauma and and weren't able to well didn't feel able to 
reach out. Maybe they felt embarrassed of me or something. Um, I know personally some of them saw patients die and, and, and weren't sort of prepared for that, of course. I think a lot of them had amazing experiences, though. I mean, of finding that nurses are incredible people, finding that the simple things are the most important things. It's not the technical things. Um, it's talking to the relative. Um, it's not about knowing this complicated diagnosis. Um, and, and that's what I would say to them as well. And they were incredible. I mean, incredible medical students were just amazing. One of the nurses said, if the future doctors are like, are like this, I've got a lot of faith. And that, for me, that was, that was moving, you know, to, just to hear that. So I thought, yeah, well done then. Well done then. Rob, I wanted to ask you about the male-female dynamic because you did mention before how your ex-girlfriend who was working as part of the hospital staff was around when you were going through this difficult situation with Daniel. Can you talk about how you were feeling at that time and what your interactions were like with her? Yeah, so we'd split up. Uh, she's a really good person. She's still a doctor um, working in a, a different hospital now. Again, sort of, I was just embarrassed that she'd had to sort of be part of this, I guess, and ashamed again. I just felt shame that it was her that kind of had to come and bail us out almost, or certainly help bail us out. Did you feel a sense of extra pressure for the fact your ex-girlfriend was observing what was going on? Because I think about myself in situations where I've been through difficulties or I've been through something where you feel like you're under pressure and your girlfriend or someone you're seeing is around it could even be something small like trying to find directions to the hotel you're supposed to stay in and you feel like oh my girlfriend is is judging me right now i guess it just made me feel incompetent basically that's right and the fact that she was she was smiling to her friends now that's fine she should smile to her friends but it just felt as i say i felt slightly paranoid that i was being talked about Smiled to friends. What What do you mean? In what context? She came with her, some colleagues of hers who were her mates. Uh, therefore, their colleagues and friends who are in the same job to to, to have a look at the patient. And uh, and again, that, that's perfectly correct um, and and is normal. And so when she talked to them and were, were sort of smiling or, or, or laughing, not laughing at the patient, of course, or, or any uh, clinical situation, but just normal chat. I felt that paranoid that, that it was it was interesting i i really did feel paranoid that they must be laughing at me of course they weren't they were they weren't talking about me at all i can kind of get what you're saying because emotionally you're thinking oh well she's laughing at me but logically you're thinking that can't possibly be the case i know her why would she be laughing about something like this but there's sometimes a bit of a an incongruence between the two and then you immediately think you can't get it out of your mind. It's the, the emotional side of things. Yeah, I, I'm sure she wasn't talking about me or laughing about me. But, uh, but I at the time I remember thinking, just feeling that sense again, shame. Like I was just, I had sort of really mucked up. I felt, and it was much worse that it was her that had had to kind of bail us out. Yeah, no, that that definitely made it much worse. I guess. As I said before, I can't possibly imagine what it's like to be a doctor and be in the kinds of situations that you're in where you're trying to save people's lives. And unfortunately, you do have situations where you lose people. How have you changed as a man since that situation happened? I can answer that on a few levels. Um, I try and write down stuff much more. That's not being defensive. That's just if someone looks at me, then, and again, that's not as a man, of course, 
uh, any other uh, doctor would would do that as well. I guess I'm a bit more cautious about that specific thing. Let's say the specific. What do we do if we have to put chest training? Sometimes I'm an anaesthetist. The alarm bells goes. You you rush in and try and help someone because they pulled the alarm because there's a crisis. I'm really wary of how I look then in that situation. As in, I go, hey John or whatever. So Anita, how can I help you? How can I help you? And I try and, and just make sure that my attitude is how can I help just be aware that people might be feeling utterly terrible hopeless and confused in fact sometimes if something happens ser- suddenly serious you're you just get you you can't cope with it so you pull the alarm and then sometimes someone else has to take take control and that's fine and we all recognize that so I think if I go to an emergency I'm really wary of how I appear with other people I work with surgeons they have complications and i'm really wary of how i speak with them you know with compassion basically and just hey that it's really difficult i've been in that situation i might that might be the first thing i would say you know to them hey i've been in the situation it's very hard don't worry about it let's let's park this let's deal with the emergency chat later you're doing really well i might say that there we go yes i would say something positive you're doing really well so it feels like you're, more, you're leaning more into your feminine, the nurturing, the caring, the positive encouragement. Yeah, yeah. Although, I'll, is that feminine or is it masculine? Well, that's, that's, the, that's an interesting question, isn't yeah. it? Yeah, yeah. Is it, I mean, traditionally, it probably would be seen as feminine, but uh, I definitely think it's, it's something that a lot of men, a lot of masculine men can use and, and utilize at their disposal to yeah. become more of a man, I think. Yeah. So, yeah, I would try and actively be kind in that situation and then maybe try and debrief them with kindness and just say, hey, that's really difficult, really difficult what happened there. Don't worry, I've been in the same situation. Let's chat. Um, so I think I think that is true. And I'm also trying to talk with my medical students about how to mentally cope with complications or problems that happen. How are you going to do that? How are we going to do that? It's really hard. Uh, if, if you harm someone, ultimately you know of course um, then um and I'm, I'm also filled with compassion a bit more compassion now for surgeons gosh what it is someone's chatting they come into hospital they have an operation a complication occurs and the surgeon has caused that in the sense that the problem wouldn't happen if they hadn't had surgery and mentally that's very hard for them, very hard. So I'm very sympathetic to surgeons. And, and as I get older, I'm, I'm sympathetic to the, the mental difficulties of being a surgeon, how you kind of get around that without being callous, saying, oh, well, whatever, doesn't matter. Well, no, that's, that's not true. Or, well, I'm never going to do that operation again. True either, you know. So how you negotiate that uh, uh, with someone. And I guess I see my role as the anaesthetist, as someone who can help them, well done, you're doing really well, or are you okay? What's happening? You know, just a few choice kind words across the across the sheet. After that situation happened and the court case was over, how did you approach your job? And also how did you view, view yourself as a man and, and how did you operate as a man? Did you become more more nervous, more more cautious of of what you were doing on a day-to-day basis or did it kind of serve as a kind of challenge for you or something to spur you on to to drive you to be better? Uh, that's interesting, isn't it? 
I um I think I didn't I was really lucky it didn't sort of destroy me. I know some people are destroyed by single things and ha- who knows? I'm fifty three, I may yet, you know, there by the grace of God and all that. But I do know people that have had individual uh serious things and they've it's consumed them. And maybe I was a bit protected beforehand in that I wasn't that introspective. Essentially, I am capable of reflection, but I wasn't. I didn't have ridiculous high aims for my two of never making any mistakes ever. And I see that in some of my colleagues when they they make a single small error that has no consequence, let's say, and they give themselves a terribly, terribly hard time. And that doesn't help anyone. So I think I, I, it didn't veer me away. Well, interestingly, I don't do that speciality, particularly now that intensive care, the non-surgical intensive care. I do, of course, I still am in that speciality. So it hasn't veered me away totally. I guess that it's made me want to be more honest with patients in a certain way, not in a stream of consciousness. Here's a list of things. Doesn't help anyone. Uh, it's made me realize that having their confidence, he was unconscious. He he couldn't know us, you know, obviously, because he's asleep. But patients who like I see before surgery, then they have their anesthetic. And I want them to feel that I have listened to them and that they can tell me stuff if they need to tell me stuff. Um, and that I've, I've considered them as people as well as a medical problem, if you like. And of course, they're much—they're much more likely to see any error on my part as well. He did his best. And I don't mean that cynically, but that's just life. If someone kind—if uh, you have a load of experience with someone kind—and then they do something, they you know whatever, forget to do the dishes or something, you don't think, "Oh bloody hell!" You think, "Oh, I'll just do the dishes," you know. And I, that on a medical scale. You mentioned about mistakes, and I find that's quite that's a well a really interesting topic because I speak to men all the time who sometimes allow the mistakes con- to consume them, and they have this sort of success and failure, and think, well, I've made a mistake, so that means I'm a failure, rather than I've just made a mistake, and that's what men do, and that's what even successful people do, and they can kind of label themselves as that. How did you deal with this mistake? in your mind and and how did you learn from it i'm just curious about something outside of being a doctor something something in your day-to-day life it could be family life it could be personal life i'm just curious about that side of things so i guess i yeah so got got three kids uh i'm married i've really learned from my wife to sort of loosen my control of, of the kids not that i ever had any control on them anyway let's be honest but 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 loosen any perceived control i was trying to have i think the problems have come where i've tried to be a bit more authoritarian and it just hasn't worked you know they'll just go whatever um i think so i think that that's definitely true um, and i've learned from my wife definitely uh, and she's quite wise in that respect and but even if i don't agree with it all the time that's not the point it's it she is good at that and she's got great communication you know with, with the kids. I, I should say that two, two of my kids are stepkids and one is my own. Um, and so that is an interesting little twist, if you like. And I, and I, my, I love all, all, all of the kids. And 
I said, they, they love me back. Or, I mean, the boy might not say that, of course. Um, but, you know, we have, a, we have a great relationship. Well, it's interesting you say, so, of course. That's right. He's 15. What can I say? You know, and, <laughs> and actually, I, I, I've, I have thought, but you're right. But also, I wouldn't want to create, I think, with stepkids, I don't want to create that uh, or contribute to that conflict of they have a dad, they have a dad, and it's not me. I mean, I would say I'm a dad figure, but, you know, I don't want to push that in their face because they have a dad. And otherwise, there's a kind of internal war if they think too, I imagine, if they think too warmly of me, then then that may create conflict in there. Well, what about my other dad? You know, that, that would be confusing to them, I think. But, I, but I ha- I've had a, a, a really beautiful Father's Day card from one of the kids one of the stepkids, which, which I've kept. In fact, I bought a, a two-sided frame so I, so I can frame it and see both sides because it's so moving to me. Because I think it, it can be quite hard to be a stepdad, I think, you know, or stepmom, because that's me. Um, certainly a stepparent. Uh, stepdad, yeah, it can be, I think. Um, and also not in a man way, not to... Uh, uh, well, I would never speak badly about their dad to them, ever. Um, but also not to try and... I found it a dilemma... If, I, if, if one of the kids is doing something, I send a photo to him, then would he feel I'm kind of trumping the dad thing a bit? I don't know. Robert seemed to hold on to the guilt. And as a young man, he just didn't have the tools at his disposal to let go of that guilt. It makes me think, as a patient, as we're all patients at some point, Should we expect doctors to be perfect, to never make mistakes? Because sometimes those mistakes can ultimately lead to someone losing their life. Sometimes for me, when I'm holding on to guilt about something, it's just those thoughts replaying in my mind again and again, those kind of fear pangs in my stomach and in my chest, and that guilty feeling that rests in your stomach, it's not healthy for any of us. And it makes me think about how much time I've wasted over the years. I can't imagine how difficult it must have been for Robert to operate in front of his ex-girlfriend. And it made me think, did he need to consciously or subconsciously prove something to her? What a great doctor he was, what a great man he is, what a capable man he is. It must have been so difficult for Robert to wait over two years to find out a verdict on potential malpractice and having to live with that day by day. I've got so much respect for doctors, nurses, medical professionals who are dealing with these life and death scenarios on a day-to-day basis. Even thinking about how difficult it must be to separate your personal and professional life as soon as you leave the hospital, going home, how do you switch off? How do you let go of scenarios that have come up throughout the day, the highs and the lows and everything in between? I think sometimes we've all been a bit frustrated or angry in the hospital but thinking about what those doctors and nurses and medical professionals are doing when they go home. Perhaps we don't think about that sometimes. Perhaps we don't think about how our words and how our anger and frustration can upset them. To have someone die under your care must be the worst fear that a potential doctor in training must be thinking about, even a doctor who's already qualified. What guilt are you holding on to right now that you can let go of or do something about? I mentioned at the start about us as men caring a lot about financial success. The truth is, we all want to make money and excel in our work. 
But understanding what drives us to our definition of success is important. That's why the team and I have designed a simple, easy quiz that's going to help you learn a lot about yourself and help set realistic targets for success. It takes less than three minutes to complete. We as men can be incredibly successful, driven individuals, but how we get there is important to understand, particularly for our mental health. Through the man quiz, you'll answer questions about your identity as a modern man. The aim is to better understand who you are to achieve the results you want in your life and work. Click the link to the quiz in the show notes now. You never know, you might just learn something new about yourself that you didn't know before.